What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Jordan Lips. Jordan, as always, dude, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, man. Always a pleasure. We always have a good chat. Of course, man. So tell us, it's been a bit since you've been on the show. Just give us a quick update on what you've been up to lately, what you've got going on. Same old, uh, running one-on-one coaching and the group program, enjoying both of those. I recently, for the first time in a long time, taking on some one-on-one coaching clients, um, which is kind of exciting. I think it's interesting. It ebbs and flows. I was doing one-on-one only for a while and it's not that I fell out of love with it. It was, it's just anything you do for a long time without something being new, which actually might be a a thread of what we talk about today. It was like, I was slightly less, you know, I I think I needed a new project to sink my teeth into, which was the group programming. Um, but I've transitioned a lot of one-on-one people into the group and I'm kind of itching again for uh, a bit more of what I do with the one-on-one. And so I've opened that and had a chance over the last year. It's probably been a year since I took, took on one-on-ones. Um, a lot of upgrade to the back end. Not a lot, actually. That's unfair, but enough that I'm like, you know, sometimes you get like a shiny object and you're just excited about it. Right. Um, and I like decided to like do nothing one day and just totally upgrade some of like the sheets that I was using and the verbiage that I was using that like didn't reflect exactly how I felt at the current day. And so after I was done, I was like, I'm kind of psyched to take on some new people. And so that's what I've been doing. So that's been exciting. Um, me wise, I busted my ankle up pretty good this weekend in a soccer tournament in South Carolina. I played with a buddy of mine and his college team, just unlucky, just rolled it, tore some ligaments. And so... Uh really like fighting the depression, wanting to be as positive as possible, uh, you know, not training legs for a bit, but also like, it's funny because there are a couple big things that got taken from me when that happened. I had a really great, like amazing trip. I was super pumped to go on in two weeks. I was going to go hiking in Yellowstone for a week. I can't do that. I'm devastated, but I'm almost like more devastated about like the bullshit day-to-day stuff that I can't do. Like I miss walking my dog and I wish, you know, and I have like that stupid knee scooter thing that I, I bought mostly to just bother my fiance and just like embarrass her. But I've been, yeah. I literally just went out for a walk with her on the scooter. I'm like, I can't not be outside. I can't freaking stay cooped up all day. Right. Um, so it's all good. Not, not, I don't want to get into the negative, but that's, that's, I have my, that's why I asked you if we were uh, putting this up on YouTube. Cause I got my leg like kicked up on the desk here. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, all good. No big deal. Same old, same old on my end. How about you? Uh, man, I am. First of all, I'm sorry to hear that dude. That is all good. Such a bummer. Uh, man, I would think pretty much the same has always um, been. Business has been growing pretty rapidly. We've had a good amount of clients as of late, but I feel like it's never <laughs> kind of always doing the same shit, I feel like. So there's never too much necessarily. You're not, you're not in the garage right now. I'm not, unfortunately. I wish I was. I just got done with that, actually. I was, that was the next thing I was going to ask you about. How has that new garage gym been? Because I don't think we've talked since you actually got all your equipment. Are you, don't, do you normally podcast in the garage? This no. looks like a new room. I, oh no, I actually just, I actually finally decorated my office. So thank God for my girlfriend, because if it was for me, like my computer would probably just be sitting on a box, but so I should say my girlfriend decorated my office. So I am in my office. Nice. <laughs> That's good to it's hear awesome. that it looked like the garage before. Uh, but no, man, it's pretty much things have been the same as always. So on that note, dude, let's go ahead and just get into the topic for the day. Um, about an hour here, so I want to dig into this because I imagine there will be quite a bit to discuss. So really, I want this discussion to be primarily centered kind of around what you've learned about hypertrophy training over the last few years and really how your approach to program design has evolved, specifically when it comes to using different phases of training where the target adaptation isn't necessarily hypertrophy to potentially lay the groundwork for more hypertrophy 
in the future. I know this is kind of a hot topic as of late, at least in our little tiny corner of the industry that is probably much smaller than we actually think it is. Um, I know like recently I heard uh, Dr. Mike and Kasim on, I believe it's the Red Vibe Stronger podcast. Very interesting debate there. And I, if you, I don't think we're going to get quite as deep into the nuances of that conversation, but to start things off, can you just give us kind of a high level overview of why we wouldn't always just stay in a hypertrophy style training if our goal was to be the most jacked human possible? Yeah, a couple of things on this. Before we get into this discussion, just in general, I think it's important to note that there will be both physiological reasons for some of these things and practical. And I think that it's important to both differentiate which of those two we're talking about. Because I think when we talk about Dr. Mike and Cass on Revive Stronger, which was a brilliant conversation, which frankly brought up a lot of the things that I had been, not that, doc, not that, not that Dr. Mike's stealing what I'm saying, but it had it was just a lot of head nodding going on. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I just wanted them to talk about those topics because I'd been ruminating on them for a while. Um, but I, we're going to have to talk about things that are, have physiological uh, considerations and things that have like more practical considerations in terms of like enjoyment, let's say emotional, physiological and emotional. Um, and so if we talk about the physiological, we have two, again, the question was like, why, why do anything other than hypertrophy if our goal is hypertrophy um, would be resensitization and potentiation would be the two reasons that you would do something out. Resensitization just means like the more you gain of a certain adaptation, the more you do that over time, the higher the threshold of that adaptation. So the more of that stimuli you would need to continue pushing that adaptation. It's just like, it's just like every, honestly, every um, stimulus adaptation response curve in the body mm-hmm. or stimulus response adaptation or stimulus recovery adaptation uh, curve in the body, there's that threshold needed to continue pushing that adaptation is going to go up. Just like you build a tolerance to certain stimuli. Let's just say that. It's like a a very rough example is like, you know, taking in more caffeine over time to get the same amount and then occasionally taking time away from caffeine so that over the net balance, you can get more out of your caffeine intake. Um, And so in order to do that, we just need to do something that's not hypertrophy. And our discussion today might be like, what would we do if not hypertrophy? Um, And then the second reason would be potentiation. Potentiation is just a fancy word for saying gaining an adaptation now that will give us better adaptations in a different in a different sphere later than doing that adaptation itself and so what i mean is like is like doing a strength phase for an athlete now it's not exactly what they need to be it's not very sport specific but it will give them adaptations which is a base strength level that will make them better at their sport later they're not actually training for their sport they're doing something else strength training but that strength that they gain now will potentiate benefits in performance on the field later and so we would have, you know, we, you would do in, in theory, we're talking, you would do something that's not hypertrophy to gain an adaptation that would give you better hypertrophy later via some indirect mechanism, but it would have to net more hypertrophy than if you did hypertrophy. So like if we talk, we're going to talk about like neurophases, metabolic phases, like, you know, doing, let's say a four week phase that's not hypertrophy will always have to be weighed up against doing that same amount of time of hypertrophy over the long term. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And very much where we're coming from in this conversation. Um, I think we're somewhat in a similar realm with who we've been learning from in the last few years. And I know a lot of this is like 
me trying to piece together kind of what we've learned from in one education specifically. Um, I know before that very much like we learned a lot from our self periodization, kind of like trying to see how we go about applying all these different things. And it's very been very interesting to see how much differently like everyone that's learned from these different resources, like how they actually apply these things in theory. Um, but I think that point of we have to be able to compare, okay, like shifting out of hypertrophy and being in a neural phase, for example, like how do we know necessarily that we got better adaptations than if we would have just stayed in a hypertrophy phase for another four weeks, for example. So to kick it off then, let's get into neural phases. So in theory, so basically here, actually I should start this off for the audience. Um, when we're looking at these different phases of programming, what we're gonna be discussing here, we basically have these three different types of training programming phases. We have hypertrophy phases, we have metabolic phases, and we have neural phases and neurological phases. So in theory, Kind of what's the thought process behind why neural phases might potentially help with more hypertrophy in the future? Yeah, I want to get to that, but there was something on the tip of my tongue. I'm just going to say so I don't forget it. it We're going to come back to neural phases. So that, like we have the resensitization and potentiation; those are our physiological things. But then we just have a novelty factor that is the emotional side of thing. And so we have okay, physiologically we might be seeking resensitization from hypertrophy. We might be seeking adaptations that potentiate greater gains in hypertrophy later. We also might just be seeking novelty for the client or person to just be emotionally engaged in what we're doing. And just generally, when we're talking about doing anything like a neurophase or metabolic phase, it has to be because when we're talking about physiologically, it has to be because we are, we are starting to see uh, either a regression in the ROI that we're getting in hypertrophy. So we have to, there has to be something that tells us, Hey, we're not getting the best bang for our buck anymore doing hypertrophy. And right. whenever we're Whenever we're trying to discern what that is, what are the what? How do we know we're not getting the the best hypertrophy gains anymore? Um, probably you'd have to look at performance as the number one thing. It's like if you're still progressing, you know, generally like reasonably well from what your coach can discern in terms of you know things are going up mezzo to mezzo. We can break down whether it needs to go up week to week or whatever. But in general, if things are going up mezzo to mezzo, it's like if the train's moving in the right direction. Like the, the only reason to get off the train is, like we said, if you need to resensitize or if you need to potentiate. Um, so if you're continuing to progress in your hypertrophy phases, then like, and we'll talk more about this, but it's almost like a, well, why get off that train if things are moving? And so you'd have to see some sort of regression in performance or a regression in the rate of performance that you would deem, hey, this isn't juice worth my squeeze right now. And I could get better net gains over the long term if I resensitized a little bit and came back. Um, and then from like the novelty perspective, like I, you are going to, I know you will agree with this. I just feel like we're in a similar spot right now where I love incorporating new rep and sec techniques, uh, whether that's, you know, reverse drop sets, Brian and I have been talking about, or it's, you know, short lengthened, short triceps or it's, you know, mile reps or different rest pause techniques or partials or descending rep method and, you know, incomplete rest method or, you know, 60-60, uh, you know, large muscle group supersets or whatever. I love incorporating those new rep and set techniques, you know, and the occasional dip out of hypertrophy. But it's usually I'm leaning more on the novelty perspective. It's rare that I, I'm coming up against maybe I don't have the eye for it. Maybe I, you know, maybe I'm not like so deep in my client's biofeedback that I'm, I'm catching it, but it's usually more a novelty thing of like, this is going to be fun. And because hypertrophy is so forgiving and you can get it in a massive multitude of ways, we can incorporate quite a bit of some of these, like, you know, what you might say is unnecessary if you compare them to just straight, straight sets, bread and butter hypertrophy, but I find them to be quite fun. And if you can get fun for, 
minimal, if any, downside in terms of hypertrophy, like we do that, you know? Right. Absolutely. Okay. So within that, especially in the context of like you taking on more one-on-one clients, do you find on the flip side, you have a decent amount of clients where like, Hey, if we are changing things up like semi-frequently, it's almost to the point where like, so for me, for example, like when it comes to, I hate changing up my programming very frequently. Like if we're changing up things like every four weeks, for example, that shit drives me crazy where I feel like it takes me a very long time to get very comfortable with the movement to drive the stimulus that I want from a movement. And so that drives me crazy. So within that, do you find that on the flip side, or is this something you're just more or less like, Hey, I know this client's personality type. We're more or less trying to tailor this to where we're coming from or where they're coming from? Or do you feel like most clients like seem to find like the novelty of it is something that's stimulating and just very enjoyable? Uh, I just think everybody's going to have a different level of novelty that they need. I think you would be low on that spectrum of like, I don't need much novelty. I more highly value continuity. Right. I more highly value my neurological efficiency that I build maybe not even just week to week, but mezzo to mezzo where like my third mezzo of movement might be my best mezzo for that movement because I'm right. just right. this dialed in with the loads that I need and the technique and where the bench goes and so you on that spectrum of I need more novelty versus less, you'd be on the less end of the spectrum. So I definitely would take it, you know, per the individual. But, you know, generally we work with not gen pop, not like just the average person, but like I'd say gen pop hypertrophy folk, you know, people who aren't trying to be professional bodybuilders. So usually what I'm doing is usually we'll be moving them on the spectrum of less variation. Usually you'll catch someone who's either coming from the orange theory or CrossFit world, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe they're doing hypertrophy, the program hopping. And just on that spectrum, directionally speaking, we it is usually in the pursuit of better goal, get better gains, let's say, which is usually what people come to you for. They're like, I haven't been seeing the gains that I want to. This is why I'm a higher coach. Usually we're moving them along the spectrum towards less novelty, towards more continuity, towards changing less stuff. Um, but again, that's a directional relative comment, you know, where that person lands, I definitely would take the individual approach for sure. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. But that, that is a good point too, about like that being relative to like someone coming from more serious, even if it was like we're changing phases every four weeks, which I don't think is anything either of us actually probably do application, but even then, like that's probably a huge step in the right direction. So more than anything, like I also like the point of ours, hypertreating in a very forgiving adaptation, right? Where like if us introducing more novelty is something that allows the client to adhere to the overall protocols better, like that's, they can still get very good results within that. So then, okay, to bring it back to the neural phases, uh, what's the thought process here again behind why these might potentially help with more hypertrophy in the future? Yeah, I think, again, we have physiological and practical we have like a divergence between what goals you would want. And I think from a physiological perspective, improved neurological efficiency, just handling heavier loads, you're going to become better at handing, handling heavier loads, um, potentially better motor recruitment. Um, and those would be the two from physiological perspective, improved neurological efficiency, better motor recruitment. You know, people would say things like you get stronger when you, and then you go back to your hypertrophy and you're, you know, if you get stronger at sets of five, then you'll be stronger at sets of eight. I don't think that that's true. I think getting stronger at sets of eight makes you stronger at sets of eight. Um, but I do think that honestly, I, I, I read my, I read the notes in front of me that I wrote and I'm like, improve neurological efficiency, better motor recruitment, <laughs> better at lifting heavy, be, better, better at managing heavy loads. But to me, the biggest benefit of doing any sort of neurophase is twofold. One, it's an emotional exposure to heavier loads and it's mm-hmm. breaking through plateaus when maybe you otherwise wouldn't have pushed yourself to go grab that next dumbbell or move up that next weight. And more often than not, when I incorporate any neuro, whether it's a neuro hypertrophy blend or a full-blown strength phase, 
I'm not so thinking, ooh, these people are going to come back with all this neurological efficiency. What I am <laughs> going to think is these people are going to touch weights they've never touched, and that might help them maybe break through a plateau when they go back to hypertrophy. Maybe they just feel more comfortable pushing themselves to go up and load when they might have been hesitant otherwise. Um, and to me, that's a way, that's way more meaningful. That's just way more where my head's at in terms of things that I'll be excited that people get in a neurophase. Right. Um, I'm not so sure that the improved neurological efficiency and potentially better motor recruitment are going to potentiate greater gains uh, than just doing hypertrophy. Maybe you could say those two things, plus the fact that you resensitize, maybe that nets better hypertrophy than just doing hypertrophy, which is fine. That's a fine argument. I don't think we have the data to say whether that's true or not. Um, But I would say normally, you know, why would I ever do, uh, uh, why would I ever give a client a neurophase? It's usually if I catch them just being like a little bit hesitant to push up. If I'm checking over their workouts and I'm seeing like, okay, it looks like they could be going up and load here and maybe they're just like a little hesitant um, or they express to me that they've been quote stuck at a certain weight. Um, and you, you know, if somebody has been stuck, you might actually say that that is, that is their hypertrophy their threshold of stimuli needed for hypertrophy going up so high that they actually might benefit from doing something else. So I think there's a lot of confounding variables here, but I think if someone's like, Hey, I'm stuck at this weight mm-hmm. sometimes. And, and, and that might be important to them because we have the whole context of if they like it, if they like it, we're going to do a neurophase. It's awesome. I actually have, a, it's funny. I've never had a client be like, I really want to do a strength phase until the last client I took on. Um, okay. I love doing a strength phase every fourth mesocycle or something. I'm like, hell yeah, that's awesome. Done. I don't even need to think about any other consideration. It's not a big downside for, it's not like a big deviation, such a big deviation from hypertrophy that she won't make any gains. Um, and so, yeah, I usually would do it if I have a client who's like emotionally attached to an exercise and they're like, well, I've been kind of stuck in a rut with this movement and maybe I'm struggling to push the load up. I've been stuck at this load and I'm like, Hey, why don't we do some descending rep work for this? Or, you know, we do a top set back off or we just move the rep range lower with longer rest and lower volume and bring the whole volume of the whole program down and, and really try and push heavier loads. And so it's, I, I think I appeal a little bit more to the emotional side. I just find that to be a smidge more meaningful than the neurological efficiency and better motor recruitment. Those to me, like they might be happening, but it's not something that I'm seeing like tangible return as much as the other stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, man. It's very much like we don't go through a neural phase. And then I can see in a client's form videos, wow, your motor unit recruitment, that is like 11% better than it was previously, right? That's not something we necessarily see, but we've seen the exact same thing where there's just something about the framing of a neural phase with a client that is struggling to push themselves with challenging modes where it could, and the weird thing about this is even if it's like, Hey, we were in the same movement, we we're in hypertrophy and your rep range was six to 10. And maybe we do like six, six, four, four, where it's like very, very similar rep ranges even, but something about the framing of, Hey, it's a neural phase. We're going to do this, um, ascending load, descending, ascending. ascending There we go. There we go. There we go. Um, within that, there's just some power to that where we go into the mindset of, Hey, our goal here is just to push heavy ass loads for you to challenge yourself. I, I agree. I think that's the biggest benefit and that carries over to hypertrophy very well because then we can re- relate back to that and like, Hey, look at how heavy, look at these challenging loads you were lifting for a relatively similar rep range in this last phase. Now we know so much more what you're capable of in this hypertrophy phase. But I, I agree. Like, I think that's the biggest, I don't think I've seen like individuals, Hey, you're getting so much more jacked now that we're so much more sensitive to hypertrophy style of training, or again, we're better at recruiting motor units. 
Um, I think it's also very cool that you have the group programming because we can kind of look at these things in much more generalities, like from how you program versus like if you were just working with one-on-one clients. So I would ask like in the context of that group programming, how often is, how often is it that you are programming something like a neural phase? Yeah. So if we're talking about like a straight neuro phase, not a blend of something where it's like, Hey, we're, we're doing a strength phase characterized by overall lower load, uh, overall lower volume, um, higher loads, longer rest, pursuit of load-based progression versus rep-based progression when we can, um, probably once a year. I might do, and you, you had kind of put in the notes of like just generally both that and metabolic. Like, And the truth is like, again, the group program is interesting because it has challenged me to think of like what what would I do with the individual versus what do I think I might generally feel for most people might be most helpful. Okay. Obviously, can't get it perfect for everybody, but I might do one full-blown metabolic phase and one full-blown neuro phase uh, for the whole year and that be it. Um, okay. Mostly because I'm not going to program active rest for my group. And so, you know, I think if we are if we were having our own pseudo, like little brother version of RP versus CAS discussion, then, you know, uh, CAS might, might maybe, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but there would be a, a benefit of these longer periods away from hypertrophy that, um, you know, we could talk about their use of doing a full-blown phase versus putting in these different stimuli as a form of a deload in a shorter context. I think Mike would return with saying, yeah, you can get that same benefit by doing some form of an active rest mm-hmm. once a year. You know, you probably don't need a lot of these like mini little dips out of hypertrophy. You can probably get a massive amount of resensitation with like an active rest being like, let's say two weeks of less structured training, less emphasis on high volume, getting close to failure. Not necessarily two weeks off entirely, although it could be that in some, some contexts. Right. Um, but I'm not going to program that for my 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 group. I'm not going to be like, hey guys, I'll see you in two weeks, you know? Um, but I'll probably say that maybe we could do something a little bit different where we take a little bit longer away from hypertrophy for some of those like more meaningful resensitization by doing a four to six, you know, a three to six week phase of each of these sorts of things. Um, but also just academically exposing them to things that are new. Um, you're going to have people that love neuro. You're going to have people that love metabolic. You're also going to have people who hate both of them. And so, um, you know, it's, that's probably where I'm sitting right now. Obviously I think, you know, just, I know you didn't mean it as if I had to put my, uh, information in stone here, but that's how I feel at this moment of like doing one of each. Um, I find that there's just, when you have a group program and there's hundreds and hundreds of people in there that it's just, there's way more low hanging fruit for people to get better gains than this. Um, just getting people to do the same program for starters week on week in and week out doing the same exercises, pushing themselves to do a little bit more each week, not changing so much, you know, between programs, taking deloads, you know, working with RIR and tempo for the first time. There's so much low hanging fruit that like, I don't put much, I don't lose sleep thinking like, well, these people need a neuro phase, you know? Um, and so I'll, I'll be more inclined to do it with a one-on-one client or not, depending on what they feel like. But as a just general group, I'm thinking probably going to do one of each at some point in the year. Okay. I think that's an important conversation to have as well, because I love getting into all these nuances. And I, I believe that you, I, I think you're probably a little bit better at like the, we're often use practical, which is a great name for your podcast. Um, but within that, I also think that's an important point to make where like, we're talking very much about minutia to like the 10th degree where as you said just getting someone to follow a program consistently just the effort the execution making sure that those pieces are in place before we start splitting all these hairs is probably the most important piece so with your one-on-one clients are there any other areas we find a little bit more utility in a neural phase so for example one thing that i have picked up from alex bush that i've liked a lot in 
implementation with our clients is a bit deeper in a fat loss phase, actually using a bit more of a neuro approach where from our perspective, it does seem that people can recover from that a bit better than a hypertrophy style of training. And we know like when we're deep in a deficit, for example, so think like the last six weeks of a deficit, it's starting to get grindy. We're struggling to recover from hypertrophy a little bit more where again, like this isn't going to, this potentially won't take up as many recovery resources, but also if we can shift to those neurological, like getting those neurological gains, well, it might not actually be muscle tissue gains. It's going to be sufficient to maintain muscle tissue, but we can actually see some neurological progressions like within the first, within those few weeks of that program. So also it's a very motivating thing mentally where it's like, Hey, I'm actually, I'm deep in the deficit, but I'm also getting stronger, right? This is dope. That's, that's, I would say from the neurological side of things, that's the biggest application I've seen. Is there anything else like that that stands out to you? That's just a very interesting point. Cause the counter argument is that you would you'd be going so low in volume that it would not be in a hypocaloric in a deficit enough of enough of a volume stimulus enough volume of stimulus to maintain muscle that would be the counter argument i don't agree with that i think it i think it would be enough um, and i think you playing to the emotional side of saying hey we're going to do a neurophase where neurological efficiency is going to build fairly quickly that it can almost mass you can almost it almost feels like you're making gains which can be really awesome and and mentally stimulating um, while we're still above the threshold to maintain muscle and right, right. it, and it, I mean, the name of the game with, we're going to, I would love to maybe at some point do an entire podcast and like this, or maybe we will when we talk about metabolic, but like this fat loss programming, that is a word that's thrown around like crazy right now. But like the name of the game for what should I do in my fat loss? What should I do as term, in terms of programming for when I'm in a fat loss phase is you should train with enough of a hypertrophy stimulus that you can at least maintain the muscle that you have while not doing such hard. Like, can I get, training that will maintain all my muscle while allowing me to recover the best and layer in some amount of enjoyment that I'm emotionally stimulated. Um, and you're saying that you, you found that like a neurophase has been something that can be helpful because you, like you said, it's like, we're getting this neurological efficiency. It feels like we're making gains and it might even be a little bit easier to recover from compared to like higher volume stuff. Exactly. And I mean, even within that, like I would still say when I program this, we're probably still double dipping where it's going to be rare that we're going below four reps on a movement, for example. I would, so I'd be interested to pick your brain on when people say neuro. Uh, I just think I'm not, I just have had conversations with people where we're like 20 minutes into the conversation. And then I'm like, okay, what do you mean by neuro? And they, they will say it. And we're just like, well, we should have started there. So you're, you're programming a fat loss phase and, or, you, you know, maybe someone's deep in a deficit and you've decided, okay, this is a tool we're going to use to you, like what would be some of the, not to, not to grill you on your own podcast, but I'd be curious to have that conversation <laughs> no, of, like it. of like, what would characterize that neuro phase? It doesn't mean you don't need to fucking make a program here live, but I'd be curious. You're like, okay, I'm thinking neuro. What are the first three tools in that, like to, to build that phase that come to mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, within that, a, a couple of the things we're going to focus primarily on starting with a few length and overload movements. Um, and typically as far as rep ranges go, again, we would probably do something like okay, maybe I'm going to implement some type of wave building, right? So maybe I'm going to go like seven, five, three, or maybe I'm going to do some type of descending rep scheme, or maybe we're going to go like six, You six, mean wave loading four. from week to week or wave loading across the week? Across the week. So across that, so like maybe like, a, and this would depend on the client. So for example, we might do like a seven, five, three, seven, five, three. And of course, within that, like I we're not going to apply that to that many movements because that's going to be a huge time investment. That's something that's happening across like six. You mean, you mean Monday we do seven, Wednesday we do five, Friday we do three. No, within a, within a single set. Right. Okay. So, so or within a single from movement. seven to five to three. Right. Right. 
I've, I've learned that as wave loading, but it's, no, it's, like I mean, very, it's, just wave, it's just like wave loading within a, within one exercise or within exactly. a meso, within a macro. So yeah, yeah. That, okay, cool. So a descending exactly. rep. Right. Yep. And then of course we would have longer rest periods within that. Again, probably the first three movements of that would be lengthened. So let's say we're going to lower body day. Number one, maybe we're doing like a heel elevated back squat, um, a bit knee RDL, and then maybe we're doing something like a glute bias leg press, for example. That's typically, I would say, and I don't think, I don't know if that's necessarily the same structure that like you would apply for a neural program, but is that how you define it? No, totally. I, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll throw some out there and then we can bounce them back. So I, I just, when I think of neuro, I'm just like thinking about like what comes to mind immediately is like average lower rest, uh, average lower reps, mm-hmm. thus average higher load, um, potentially incorporating some, some form of descending rep. Seven, five, three is super cool. Any, any descending rep, there's a million ways to go about doing that. Um, on average, lower total sets, maybe on average, less shortened position work, right? Um, potentially uh, utilizing some higher complexity movements just because we're going to have that longer rest. So not going to worry about that neurological, like your nervous system, like getting beat up over the course of doing five sets of something. Um, well, it might actually get better doing it that way, but I might be more inclined to, to like you said, do a back squat in this sort of a mezzo um, right, right. just because of those longer rest periods. And yeah, more, more weight, lower reps, more rest, lower volume, potentially descending reps, uh, the use of not entirely, but maybe more on average lengthened overload, or at least not like, not like getting super hyped up about more short position work. That's not necessarily what we would be after here. Um, do you find yourself choosing, like, do you find this as an opportunity to also piggyback on potentially choosing exercises that we have an emotional attachment to that aren't optimal for hypertrophy where you're like, Hey, we're going to do uh, a a, millet, a barbell overhead press, or hey, we're going to do a barbell bench press, or a, or a barbell back squat instead of a hack squat, or a bar, or a deadlift from the floor instead of an RDL. Like, is that something that you also find that like can we fit that into? If it's something that's important to the client, I will say less and less does a client come on board and say like, hey, I want to be able to do a conventional deadlift, I want to be able to do a barbell bench press. But if it's something that I know is important to the client and they enjoy, I'm absolutely going to feed into that emotional attachment. But I'll say surprisingly, I don't think that comes up extremely often with people that we work with. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. We, I mean, we have unfor- we have either fortunately or unfortunately just murdered the barbell. The barbell's just dead. Like this is dead. No one's using it anymore. Um, but yeah, this is funny. Yeah. Okay. So with that, I would ask as far as like rep ranges when you're programming this, would you typically err towards something a bit lower? Because I would say still like the majority of our work, like even in a neural phase, is probably going to fall within four to six reps. Oh, totally. I'm not going lower than that. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, again, in seven five three you would do a triple, but it would be countered by that's still an average of five reps, you know? Um, and so I think it's fine. I think there's no hard and fast rule. I think doubles and singles, I mean, the closer you get to one rep, the, the more exponential drop in benefit, I think, you know, if a, a two is much worse than a three and a one is much worse than a two, uh, just percentage wise, you're going down by a greater amount each time. So, um, I think, you know, whatever three to eight would be, you know, I'd probably spend the majority in the four to six, but maybe something like a descending rep of like eight, six, six, four or eight, six, four, four. Um, but on average in that four to six rep range primarily for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. Cool. And then I would say the other thing with neural phases, I really like, if we're looking at short and overload movements, typically I'm going to program that closer to eight reps still, because I don't like a, a bicep, cur- uh, like a bicep curl in application. Like I get it, but I feel like it's so hard to actually, I, I just hate doing like a, like a five rep bicep curl or a four rep bicep curl, for example. I'd be interested here if that's something you've taken as well. 
Yeah, I hear there. I mean, there's a certain loud individual in the industry right now is just like pandering that, you know, we should only do five to eight reps of everything. Um, and Who could you possibly be talking about? <laughs> no idea. Um, but, but, and then whatever, I actually, to be fair, that, that came off ruder than I meant it. I think he added context. I would agree with most of what was said, but I think you could layer on top just like a more real world view of, okay, well, I'm just, I've done five rep lateral raises before and I just feel like there might be uh, a better way to go about doing this. Maybe there's a joint pain uh, consideration here. You know, maybe there's a, something about a mind muscle connection consideration. There's these, these things seemed a bit less tangible, but if I had to pick between a five rep lateral raise and a 10 rep lateral raise, I would always pick 10 and I've done them both. And there's something about, I, I almost can't put my finger on exactly why that would be. I just find that my reps maybe improve and you might say, okay, you're going too heavy on the fives. I've tried a, a lot of those different techniques. I'm not an ass with my, you know, rep or my load things that I pick for myself, but 10 rep lateral raise, five rep lateral raise. I'll take the 10. I just find that it's a higher quality set, for example. Absolutely. Okay. I love it. So any other thoughts on the neuro side of things before we move into metabolic? I think technically speaking, um, there's an average reduction in RIR in a neurophase is something that I think is technically uh, would be an N1 argument of like, you probably uh, would just very gently go a smidge further from failure on some of these. Um, just, I would, I would consider why that would be frankly, um, potentially just because maybe because of some of the neurological complexity, some of the movements that, or maybe just because that you're doing more lengthened overload and maybe just getting so close to failure with such a lengthened overload emphasis, would just fuck you up. Um, I don't find that that's something that I necessarily do whenever I program some of this stuff. I find that it's, I think I just keep a regular average of two across a mezzo, whether that's starting from four and going to zero or doing descending RIR within an ex, within one exercise, which is tends to be how I, I, I do things these days. It would be a little mm-hmm. bit more of like a three, two, one, zero in the same exercise. Um, but yeah, that's just, I, I suppose to something I would throw out there, but I'd be interested in, you know, it's almost like you talked about working with a coach and, and going all in on the periodization and making sure you're exposed to everything. Um, and just like the RIR the, or the, the, the progression of proximity to failure in a, in a neuro phase is always interesting because I feel like people, when they see a strength program, they think this is my chance to go balls out and they tend to go way too hard, way too soon. Something we talk about another time though. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you do exactly what, you have the exact same approach that we apply as far as RIR within these phases. So because we've already taken up a lot of time here, let's go ahead and move on to metabolic phases before we get too far, much further down that rabbit hole. So in theory, what's the process behind why a metabolic phase might potentially help with more hypertrophy? Yeah, I think, I think metabolic is actually the one, one of the, the of the three phases that has the two most different stimuli within it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of hypertrophy, it's it's like a little bit of a movement across the spectrum, but even on one side, on the other side, there's still hypertrophy. Like metabolic, you could be doing local metabolic training or you could be doing systemic or whole body metabolic training, which are very, very different in application and very, very different in goal. And so I think when people talk about metabolic training, they just say that word. It is the most incorrect of all of them, because I need to know which one of those you're talking about because they're extremely different. Um, local would be, you know, typically we would call that AMPK training, whole body uh, conditioning, we would call systemic, uh, systemic training or systemic stimuli, whatever. Um, and so when we look at AMPK training, the benefit or the, let's say the potentiation benefit for hypertrophy would be mainly better glucose disposal, better glycogen storage, better nutrient partitioning, um, basically, you know, better insulin sensitivity, basically ba- making your muscles 
uh, better at storing more glycogen. And glycogen is something that we use for you know all of our most you know almost all of our resistance training, specifically high volume hypertrophy phases. And so, you know, if we can teach our body, our muscle cells to be more receptive to that insulin and actually store more glycogen, be better at storing glycogen, we could effectively take that adaptation of, okay, I'm better at storing glycogen and go into our hypertrophy phases, you know, top it off in glycogen, potentially with some of those adaptations for a couple of weeks. Um, and if we look at whole body conditioning, you would have to say it would be something, you could say things like better work capacity, um, improved cardiovascular conditioning, enhanced recovery. I would... I would bundle all of that up and say a less likelihood of cardiovascular fitness being a limiting factor in certain movements during the hypertrophy phase. Um, so, you know, if you're finding that your walking lunges are always cardiovascularly limited, you might say, okay, I'll do systemic. I'll get better at that thing so that when I go back to do my walking lunges, I have that adaptation and now I can take my quads or glutes or adductors or whatever close to failure instead of, you know, I have to put the dumbbells down because I can't breathe. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So an application when we're talking systemic and local, and let's gear this more towards one-on-one clients than the group programming. Is this, are either of these phases something you find yourself using frequently? Ooh, um, frequently. I'd say systemic is probably the thing I use the most, maybe full stop. Um, and that's to say, that's not I don't know if I 100% agree with that, but that was my knee-jerk reaction there. I, I, first of all, I would, like I would say, I probably don't use as much periodization as it, what might imply if you haven't right. been following too much. But I'd say, I'd say systemic is one that I use fairly frequently, I guess, because of how different it is from hypertrophy. Because if our goal is really to resensitize and, and we have a compared to what scenario where we would be comparing this to a traditional deload, let's say, which you would drastically reduce volume or intensity or some combination of those, which I think is an amazing way to... Like you cannot say that that's not resensitization. It sure as shit is uh, because you're literally not doing hyper, like almost anything really. You're just doing enough to like keep some neurological adaptations. Um, but systemic is very far away from that. And so if I am looking for something that is going to accomplish um, that resensitization because it is so far away from hypertrophy, systemic is something that I tend to lean towards. Um, AMPK is way more fun, I think, for most people. Actually, that's not fair. I think some people are going to love systemic. Um, and if we if we look at systemic, it's usually going to be characterized by some form of like circuit training, where actually the emphasis is on making cardiovascular. It's almost like it's. I'm not reducing it to this, but it's almost like cardio with weights, where mm-hmm. I want to I want to to work large muscle tissue. I want to challenge my liver to continue working hard, and I want to work a lot of muscle tissue at once. High workout density usually big muscle group supersets or giant sets or circuits where my cardiovascular system, my ability to recover between sets becomes the limiting factor from, from, from round to round. Um, and it ends up looking like, you know, sometimes it's an AMRAP. Sometimes it's like big muscle group, 60 second supersets where you're huffing and puffing, you're sweating a lot. And some people love that. And so I think that, again, we have physiological benefits, which we could talk about in a second, but practical benefits, we have to say, okay, if somebody really likes this, this is something we're going to use. But physiologically, it's tough. It's a tough sell for me, frankly, because if you, if you have that same argument about the walking lunges, uh, where you're like, I do walking lunges and it's always limited by cardiovascular system. There's probably nothing better than doing walking lunges to, to get that specific cardiovascular adaptation to make it less a limiter over time. And so I would almost just say over the course of three or four mesocycles, keep walking lunges in there and find that your very specific adaptations for walking lunges should get better. Um, 
you know, cause we always have to wait. Am I going to, am I going to do three weeks away from hypertrophy just because of this one issue? Or maybe I just don't do walking lunges or maybe I keep them in and okay, I get one or two reps shy of failure, muscular failure because I'm at systemic failure. Um, and so that's a long winded answer. I use it. I use it a bit more for clients who maybe need a break from hypertrophy. Certainly for the, and when I say need a break, I mean, mentally, emotionally would like some novelty. Um, certainly for clients who I know come from a background of like, they might like doing this of sweating. Um, it tends to be an overall shorter workout, which is, can also be nice for clients who feel a little bit burnt out time commitment wise. Again, those are a lot of practical reasons, but I tend to more highly value those to be honest. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting also to me not to go on this massive rant is like most people who are out of shape get every adaptation when they do any of these training. You know, if you take an untrained person, you do systemic, they get hypertrophy, you know, they get more systemic than hypertrophy, but they get significant hypertrophy because they have none of this stuff. And if you take somebody who has shit systemic, which is most people just like the average American, let's say, and you put them in hypertrophy, what do they get? They get amazing neurological benefits. They get hypertrophy, they get systemic benefits, they get everything. And that isn't to say they get everything in the same amount as they would if they did other phases. But I just feel like if I have someone who's like, wants to improve uh, work capacity, cardiovascular conditioning, enhance recovery in the context of hypertrophy, most people get that very specifically doing hypertrophy. Um, And so I, you know, and and if we, if you watched, which I'm sure you did, but uh, the person listening watched like the discussion between Mike and Kaz, there is a big question of like why I would want to have better tolerance to volume, why I would want to have better work capacity, why I would want to have improved uh, you know, enhanced recovery. You know, there's a question of like, well, if I can recover from more, then I must do more. And is that, you know, am I, you know, and then the counter argument to that is like, do I want to stay as deconditioned as possible on the back end of that? I, no, there's probably a happier medium, but I, I don't want to be an elite endurance athlete. And I, and I don't think that that's what Kaz would say the goal of this is, but even just small pivots of like, well, what, what's really the point of me getting in better cardiovascular shape? How is that going to, you know, I can survive more sets, but do I then have to do more sets to get the same benefit? It's an interesting loop of questions. And I don't necessarily have the answer to that. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, (laughs) they're just rhetorical. Like I have no idea what the, what the answers are. We, we don't know. Yeah. But I agree. And I love the point you made where for most people, we see these benefits just by getting in hypertrophy, right. Where like we've gone back and forth with our team, like, especially as we were first like learning about this, um, and it was like, okay, so I, this client doesn't seem like she's super strong. So should I start her in a neural phase? Right. And so honestly, we probably do better, like starting her in hypertrophy where like, if she's pushing for four to six reps, like she, one, like we don't know how good she is actually at these movements Two, She's probably not actually going to get like all the neurological adaptations we want because there, she's not going to be able to like push herself to the extent we want yet. Like there's, I feel like there's just so much to where again, we can get most of these benefits from just spending time in hypertrophy. But it sounds like when it comes to the systemic side of things, it's rarely something that you're programming for, hey, we want to do this specifically to improve conditioning as much as it is like, hey, psychologically, you might just need a break for hypertrophy or from, from hypertrophy or potentially we want to get like these resensitization benefits, which again is a little bit more unclear. Yeah, if you're, you know, it's interesting for like, uh, you, you I think that when we look at hypertrophy movements, you're usually picking movements that have a low likelihood of you failing for another reason other than muscular failure. Like we're picking movements, you know, if someone's like, Hey, why would you want to do a hack squat over a back squat? And I would 
you know, there are a couple of reasons, but one of them would be like, I would bet that you have a better chance of taking just the quads close to failure in a hack squat than in a back squat, you know, due to, you know, the core demand in, let's say the core demand and the coordination demand in a back squat, you might find that one of those two things is a limiter versus in a hack squat. And so you're, you're generally asking that question already when you're choosing exercises. And if I look at a standard hypertrophy program, um, you know, let's say you had all the equipment in the world, you probably wouldn't get anybody but the least conditioned people in the world to, to have an issue where they're like, well, everything is cardiovascularly limited. You know, like I think of walking lunges is something that I regularly program that people find is cardiovascularly limited, maybe barbell back squats. But again, if you had all the equipment in the world, you could argue not programming barbell back squats would be best. Um, people who don't rest enough. So maybe people are like, oh, it's cardiovascularly limited. I'm like, yeah, you're resting 30 seconds between legs on split squats. Of course it's cardiovascularly limited. And so you almost, it's almost rare to run into the circumstance of like, oh my God, look at, look at your training. Everything's cardiovascularly limited right. and you're doing everything right. And we've picked, you know, uh, a, a costal cable press. That's, it's not going to be cardiovascularly limited. So it's very unlikely that the only person who would feel that way probably is someone who has none of these adaptations is very new to everything. And for that person, like we just talked about, I might just keep them in hypertrophy and let them get all these adaptations instead of like just, you know, like this need for periodization definitely scales the more advanced you are. For you have a newbie, newbie, there's so much overlap that I might be like, okay, you don't have systemic adaptations, but you'll get them and you'll get if it neurological efficiency if we just hang out in hypertrophy too. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with all that, man. I think you summed it up very well. So then finally, to get into hypertrophy training, and we more or less already answered this question, but let's take this from the group to an individual broad generalization over six months individual that wants to get jacked how much time are you typically spending in hyperdrive phases all of it probably uh as the answer is as much as possible and then the, the direct answer is probably all of it um Probably all of it. And again, depends where that person is. But you, you wrote, you'd said like six to 12 months. And my answer for the group was like, we'll probably do two of those months, two phases of the yearly macro phases, two of those phases outside of hypertrophy, probably one, maybe in more neuro phase, one, maybe in a more me- metabolic phase in a six month period. If I only have six months to work with somebody, it's very rare that we'll you're probably best. I mean, it's hard to, it's so, it's such a funny thing to say, like, I'll get more hypertrophy, not doing hypertrophy. And that is, is possible though. The potentiation benefit is an argument that exists. Um, but it's just in that short span of time, I think six months is a short span of time. It's unlikely that you're going to run into a spot where the, the hypertrophy stimulus is, uh, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've become so accustomed to it physiologically that you really need to dip out and come back in. Absolutely. Okay. So from a potentiation perspective, I have no idea how I came up with this number. I don't know if I did something, but typically like my thought process has been, okay, probably about once a year for something like three to four weeks, probably makes sense for us to transition out of hypertrophy. And it seems that more or less that's kind of the conclusion where, Hey, maybe like one to maybe two months across the course of the year, we do that and we're probably good from like a resensitization perspective. Is that about where you're at? Is that? Totally. And the counter would be an RP structure where you would just uh, take those more traditional deloads that that I think Mike would argue would be even better for resensitization than doing some other stimuli and then doing an active rest once a year where you're maybe doubling up on a deload doing two weeks. Um, and I think I, the funny thing is as I was listening to both of them, I was like, it probably nets out to very similar and it's mostly an intellectual argument, probably very similar between you. We might spend 
you know, like you just said, one or two phases out of it per year. And uh, Mike might say, yeah, well, we're going to do just two weeks of a, of a, of a, of a active rest. And I think it's probably going to net out to very similar. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So from there with anti-hypertrophy programming, so if we're talking six months of just straight hypertrophy work within that, are you introducing a good amount of variety mesocycle to mesocycle? So again, for example, I know N1 has like, we have mechanotransduction, we have mechanical damage, we have oxidative damage. So within your hypertrophy programming, is that more or less like, hey, across six months, we are, okay, maybe we're plugging in, we've been progressing in the rear foot elevated split squat for a long time, so we're gonna plug in a different pattern here, and we're more or less keeping like the sequencing of movements, like or shortened to lengthen or whatever those patterns may be the same or is it like hey we were in this stimulus with an hypertrophy then we want to move to the next stimulus and then the next stimulus does that question make sense sure totally um totally i think if we call mechanotransduction as like bread and butter hypertrophy training which is like moderate loads moderate rep range moderate rest periods mostly straight sets um that would be the baseline that we're saying hey we would have to we would have to have a reason to deviate from this because this is probably baseline the best we could do, I guess, you know, if you had to do one phase and be the most jacked and then you died, you'd probably do a mechanotransduction phase. Let's say, for example, uh, if you had to build like the actual most uh, muscle tissue, that would probably be it. You know, maybe you could argue mechanical damage potentially. I don't know. Um, but I think it would be mechanotransduction. So that's probably going to be like my base hub from which we deviate from. Um, mechanical damage is, is mostly something I do for fun. Um, and I say fun because you get mega fucking sore doing mechanical damage and it's very challenging and it is novel and it is still, and so like when we do things that are novel and fun, you hear those words and you're like, okay, but novel and fun, is that a trade for hypertrophy benefit? Am I sacrificing hypertrophy for this fun? And I think this is a circumstance where you don't really, I think it's a very hypertrophic phase, extremely high. I mean, it's extremely hypertrophic, extremely damaging. You can't do it for very long. Um, and so I like those I like the things that we can incorporate novelty wise that don't sacrifice from hypertrophy. And so I will go from mechanotransduction phase that's more intensity based. So maybe a blend of neuro and hypertrophy where we do some descending rep work, but with slightly higher rep ranges, maybe we do some cluster sets. Um, and then maybe I'll go to more of a mechanotransduction, more tension based where maybe it's a little bit lower rest periods, still in that moderate rep range. Occasionally we'll do some mechanical damage, which is going to be an emphasis on the eccentric, the length of position, almost entirely lengthened position work. Um, if you had to think of the most diabolical, painful program you could do in terms of soreness, this would be that. Um, and so I'll teeter-totter between those, but then that's that will be more for a one-on-one client who I have the opportunity to really go through those things together. Right. When I work with the group, I will go with a technique where I will do, let's say, mechanic transduction, but I will tease a technique that plays a big role in another phase. So maybe I'll do mechanic transduction, just like a very basic straight sets, but maybe we do one descending rep uh, exercise where we're like, hey, everybody's doing a descending rep on their leg press. So I can have them do something that they all already know how to do, but then they, they can wrap their head around this just one thing. Because if we were going to do very intensity-driven hypertrophy, we might do a lot of descending rep work. But if you don't know what descending rep work is yet, I don't want to throw these people immediately into the fire. And so, and I'll do this one-on-one coaching clients too. Where I'm like, hey, we might do this descending rep work we might do a lot of it in the future. So let's do it just once in this program right now so that you can, we could talk about it. And it, if you fuck it up, it's just one thing. It's not the entirety of the program. Or if we do myo reps, or if we're doing uh, 60, 60 supersets, or if we're doing uh, length and partials, or if we're doing reverse drop sets, I might just sprinkle that into more of a bread and butter hypertrophy phase before we go to a phase that is highly emphasized by that thing. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll throw it a random incomplete rest method 
in there, you know, where someone's like, you know, if we're doing a real AMPK program, you might do all incomplete rest periods, four to six, four to six exercises, mostly short position, incomplete rest. Um, but might not know what that is. And so, you know, there's a practical thought where I'm like, okay, I want to go to a a neuro ish phase soon, but we've never done clusters before. We've never done descending rep work. Uh, and so maybe we throw one of those in now. And so it's, it's a bit of balancing, making sure people know what the hell is going on because in a group, I don't get a chance to I communicate with everybody, but I don't get a chance to communicate with every single person. Um, and so it's a balancing act that I think everybody understands. And as long as we're not deviating so far from hypertrophy on a regular basis, I'm cool with putting in something that uh, you might look at, at in isolation and be like, well, maybe this is an optimal for hypertrophy. But it's like, yeah, sprinkling this into the greater some uh, programming that is for hypertrophy for the, a purpose that you know, maybe I want to experiment with this in the future. So I'll drip it in now. Um, I'm cool with that. I can sleep at night. Okay. I love it. So final question I want to ask you as far as hypertrophy goes is, so just because Brian and I talked about this yesterday, I don't want to get your thoughts as well. Same muscle group supersets. Is that something you find yourself programming often or typically something you're trying to avoid for hypertrophy specifically? I would, I would, my opinion on that would be that it is normally for a novelty perspective. Like when I make that sort of a decision where I'm like, Hey, I'm going to do leg extension into hack squat. I'm usually making that decision more from a, this will be fun and novel and a new type of hell for somebody. Then I am thinking like, Hey, doing leg extension supersetted to hack squat is vastly different from doing leg extensions and then doing hack squats, like separate, separate sets, doing leg extension three for three sets and then hack squat for three sets versus three rounds of leg extension into hack squat. I can't imagine that there is a big difference. And I would much sooner make an argument for the time-saving benefit of doing it that way than the stimulus benefit of doing it that way. I think if I'm in a hypertrophy phase and I feel like doing a superset, maybe it's a time-saving, maybe it's a novelty perspective, um, maybe it's more of a practical pre-exhaust for somebody who's at home with not a lot of weight. And I find that like, maybe I want to program like a front, you know, maybe someone only has dumbbells and our best opportunity to load the length of position is a foam roller hack squat or a two dumbbell front squat or a goblet squat. But shit, these are movements where we don't have a lot of load or maybe the front loaded movements are more likely to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, limited by upper back musculature, your ability to stay upright. So if we can pre-exhaust your quads with a short position, something like a leg extension or even a banded leg extension or even a lengthy position, something, um, that might be a situation where I use that. So I'm less, I would be less likely to sit here and be, make a, a, a robust argument about the greater stimulus of doing it that way and more look at like, what are practical reasons where this might be helpful? Okay. So it sounds like at the end of the day, again, it's the practicality. Probably not going to argue extremely hard that, and I, I would agree with that fully, like the difference between, hey, we did these straight sets, we went short and first for three straight sets, then we did three like overload. That's like the difference between that and just doing the superset. I think for most people, it's probably pretty negligible to the point it's not something we necessarily need to overthink, which it kind of sounds like is where you're at with that as well. Yep, definitely. And I think there's, an, there's also like, I get a lot of questions. I had some, I just did a Q&A this morning and somebody was talking about like, she was like, I could tell in her voice, she was feeling anxious about the fact that she programmed a length and position movement before the short position work. Um, and frankly, I think the ordering of exercises based on like the position that is training lengthened or short position, excuse me, um, is one factor that is certainly relevant. But I also think that it's probably, in my opinion, outweighed by 
other factors like neurological complexity. Like I find myself looking at a workout and I'm just thinking what order of this, of these exercises is going to get people to perform the best in these movements. Like a back squat is a length of position exercise, but I would probably put it at first because it's about as neurologically complex as hypertrophy gets that. And like split squats, like, you know, I'm not putting leg extensions before that, you know, it's not the end of the world. You could, it's not like, you know, it's not a clean, it's not a snatch. It's not like, you know, backflip. It's not the craziest neurologically most complex thing ever, but for the average person who's not 10 years into doing back squats, it's, it could be complex. And so someone might hear this, you know, you got to do length, short position first. I would sooner put neurologically complex stuff first. Um, and I would also sooner put stuff that you care about first, you know, and I would maybe sooner put stuff that you're trying to improve on technique first um, or, or sooner. And so I think all of those things being equal, if I'm doing like two tricep movements that day, yeah, okay. Neither of them, they're both with cables. Neither of them are neurologically complex. I'll go short position first, totally. Cause I, I do think that there's absolutely a consideration there, but I find myself, um, you know, I, the example I thought of was doing like a hip extension and an RDL on the same workout. And I've done it millions of times, both ways, hip extension first, RDL first. And I find almost across the board, people do better when they do the RDL first. Um, some people get like, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that is a technique move that they would probably, I would probably rather them do super fresh. Um, but again, it doesn't matter a whole lot in my opinion. Yeah. No, I agree. That's very much kind of how we've approached things as well, where more or less I'm looking at what are the primary most complex movements that we want you to be able to continue to progress across this metal cycle. And again, like we look at, hey, maybe it is slightly, like we could argue maybe it's more optimal if we do go like short into lengthen here. But again, typically, like if we're really going to bias something like, okay, really, if we're going to bias quads and I'm going to have like a back squat, um, let's say maybe a leg press and a leg extension. I'm a, a very similar to what you said, that back squat or honestly probably even the hack squat I'm going to put first. And then if I want to go like, maybe we could do like a leg extension and then go into a leg press from there. Um, that's very much the approach that, I will take there as well. So I couldn't agree more, man. Now from there, I have to run to another call here pretty shortly. So I'm sorry to cut this conversation off. I would love to keep going down these rabbit holes, but as always, dude, I appreciate your time. Before I let you go, will you let the listeners know where they can find you and anything and all you'd like to blog? Yeah, man. Instagram is the best place to find me. Um, Instagram might be dying actually though. So maybe we, we move over to the podcast and TikTok. Uh, no, but um, Instagram, best place to find me. Shoot me a DM if you have a question. I'll always answer and, and you can communicate with me there. And then everything that I do is kind of in the bio, uh, Instagram bio. Absolutely. And as I've said before, I can't recommend your group programming enough. You are always who we recommend people go to. Um, really appreciate the good work you put out there as well. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, man, thank you for being here. Thanks, brother. 